0: Let's dive into today's topic. Hey, welcome back for another episode of the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brandon Laws, but today I'm going to step aside. You may remember a few episodes back, my colleague and fearless leader, Angela Perkins played guest host, and interviewed Daniel Harkavy, the author of Living Forward, which I love that episode and I love that book even more. And she's back today to interview Craig Weber. He's the author of Conversational Capacity and also the founder of the Weber Consulting Group. And Craig's worked with leaders and teams from a few companies you probably would recognize like Boeing, the CDC, Cliff Bar, Pfizer. NASA. He's a a very sought-after consultant and speaker, and he's got some awesome ideas. Angela had a chance to see him speak at a Vistage International Conference where um, he's actually won Speaker of the Year um, in 2012, and he's won an equivalent recognition back in 2015 in Canada in a division known as TEC. So, They cross past the Vistage. Angela was blown away by his content, especially around his book, Conversational Capacity, and was like, hey, let's bring him on the podcast. And I'm like, hey, look, you take this. It's all you on this one. So anyways, Angela plays guest host today. So make sure to show her the love reach out to her on LinkedIn. She's there. And then also go to iTunes, give us a review, let let us know how she did. And if you want to hear more of her, I'll we'll keep bringing her back if, if you love uh, the work that she's doing. So anyways, I will get out of the way and enjoy the conversation between Angela Perkins and Craig Weber.
1: Craig, welcome to the show.
2: Angela, thank you for having me.
1: It's great to have you today. We're really excited for the discussion. Uh, As we've talked about, you are an author of a book called Conversational Capacity and the founder of the Weber Consulting Group. Really excited to have you today. You and I, we cross paths in the Vistage world, so I was able to see you and spend an entire day with you. And after spending some time with you, I knew I just had to introduce you to our audience.
2: Well, I appreciate that very much. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So uh, I look forward to the podcast.
1: Excellent. Well, let's do this. Why don't we start out with a little uh, glossary? And why don't you define for the audience? What is exactly conversational capacity? And why do we care about it?
2: I'll define it in a couple of ways, actually, and it'll give us something to kind of bounce around as we uh, move forward. The simple definition would be what I would call the dictionary definition. And you could say conversational capacity refers to the ability to have open, balanced, learning focused dialogue about difficult subjects and challenging circumstances and even across tough boundaries. And so you can see this really easily at a team, a high conversational capacity, they can put their most painful, divisive, challenging issue on the table and do really good work around it. Where a team with low conversational capacity, a minor difference of opinion can mess things up. And so in this sense, sort of a linchpin competence, you can get all the other things right where you want them to be, strategy, staffing, you know, everything right. But if the conversational capacity of a team or a business is too low, given the issues they're dealing with, it's going to underperform
1: sure well and you talk about this a little bit in your book where it's a common phenomenon to have really smart capable individual contributors you put them all in a room together and you expect explosive results but somehow that team dynamic doesn't come together and it really comes down to this the ability to have meaningful conversations
2: that's a really really that's well framed actually uh in fact that's a perfect segue to the second definition i would bring up and that is The sweet spot. And there's a place in a conversation where you want people working. And it's that place you just described where you just you don't just have smart people around the table. You're able to get access to their smarts. And those are two very different things. And I think all too often we focus on getting the right people on the bus, as Jim Collins would say. But then we don't create an environment where we can get access to those smarts when we need them, which is not very smart. Right. Sure.
1: When you're having conversations and you find yourself with these varied opinions, so you have these smart people in the room, you can't get access to their smarts, are we looking for agreement?
2: No, that's, and I think that's um that's a trap we often fall into. We feel like good teamwork centers around consensus and everyone agreeing, and I don't think that's the right thing. I think learning should be the goal, not agreement. And so who's making the decision? Uh, and then how do we help whoever's making the decision make it with their eyes wide open, make the smartest choice they can make given the constraints, time, information, otherwise? And then when you put agreement in the driver's thing uh, seat, things start getting squirrely pretty quickly, especially when people just aren't going to agree. Then you're kind of stuck.
1: When you experience and maybe talk us through the different kinds of definitions of when you get stuck in that spot you're (laughs) minimized you're winning maybe walk us through the definitions of those two
2: pieces What holds us in the sweet spot is candor balanced with curiosity. The conversations are honest, open, forthright, very direct. But at the same time, what keeps all that candor from just overheating is that it's balanced with curiosity. People are inquisitive. They're there to learn. When you have a different view than I do, I don't get defensive or upset. I get interested. Wow, that's interesting. I love my idea. Here's Angela. She's extremely smart. She has tons of experience, and she hates my idea. That's interesting. What is she picking up on? I'm missing. And so that's what holds us in the sweet spot is that place where candor and curiosity are in balance. And when we leave the sweet spot one way or the other, it's almost always because we've let go of one pole or the other. And so you mentioned this need to minimize that I talk about in my book and in my workshops, where what often happens is we trigger out of the sweet spot, not because we don't have good intentions, but because our need to play it safe, to be comfortable, to come across as likable and agreeable overwhelms our ability to be candid. I want to be speaking up at a meeting and I'm sitting there with a stupid grin on my face. And this need to minimize is grounded in the uh, flight response. And so it's not a minor tendency. It's amazing how quickly it can separate our our actual behavior from our good intentions under pressure.
1: Where do you identify on this? uh, and, And am I as a person, one of the, do I land in one of these buckets or how does that kind of come out?
2: That's a great question. We all do both. And I'll talk about the other tendency here in a minute. So it's not like we just do one or the other. So the question I often ask people to you know kind of entertain is under what circumstances in life, personally and professionally, do I find myself leaving the sweet spot and being less candid than I need to be under pressure? And where are those circumstances in life where I tend to go the other direction? And there's this need to be right, this need to get your way, this need to sell your view to the group, or as I call it, the need to win the conversation. And when the need to be right gets triggered, curiosity tends to suffer. We drop curiosity like a hot potato, and it's just raw, unadulterated candor. We're not listening. We're arguing. We're shutting people down. We're dominating the discussion. And so we'll all do both. The interesting question is, when do you slip one way? When do you slip the other? That said, we do tend to have a dominant tendency. I'm no doubt a dominant minimizer. Uh, and so oftentimes it's hard for me to give someone constructive feedback, for example, because I want to be nice. I want things to stay even keeled. I don't want to hurt feelings or look like a jerk. And so I have to struggle against that sometimes to be as candid as I need to be to be effective. I see other people who grew up in situations where they're wired the other direction. How about yourself?
1: I would uh, resonate with a minimizer as well. So I, you actually, when we spent some time together, you said it so eloquently Craig, you said um, some people just don't want to be the jerk in the room. And I I will sit with that to if I'm in an environment where my opinion is differing from everyone else, I just don't I don't want to either make the meeting longer or come off, you know, not agreeable. And so I'll sit on it for sure. And, And, you know, some of the things that you talk about, too in the book, uh, one thing in particular that really struck me is you have a statement that says senior leaders are stealing from the company when they don't speak up and solve problems. And as a self-professed minimizer, that I took that to heart. I was thinking, gosh, what am I leaving on the table or not putting on the table that really could be helping the company? So that was a huge aha moment for me. But as a minimizer, how do you really take that and put that into action? So this is what you do in your consulting business is you help teams leadership senior leadership teams develop ways to get to that sweet spot more often as a minimizer what are some of the tools and tricks that you give to the folks like me that would much rather kind of let things go versus cause what I would consider trouble or issues
2: yeah well said yeah i think the first thing is awareness how do we get better at recognizing when we're at risk of leaving the sweet spot so we're better able to stay there and if we do leave it we catch it quickly and can get back so I spend a lot of time getting people in touch with the situations where they tend to minimize or they tend to win and how that's getting in the way of their effectiveness. And I actually encourage people to keep a trigger journal. Start actually noticing situations in life where your behavior and your good intentions are just in different places. But awareness only gets us so far. And so I actually help people develop a discipline, what I refer to as a conversational martial art, for staying in that sweet spot in a much more disciplined way. And there's both a mindset and a skill set. And just really quickly, the mindset is about learning. I, I need to be genuinely more interested in learning, getting smarter, and thinking more clearly about an issue than in being comfortable or being right. So I'm not just recognizing my need to minimize or my need to win. Under pressure, I'm actually learning to kick it, kick them to the curb in the pursuit of learning.
1: Yeah, that's a really great point.
2: Yeah, that, that's, that's what really got to be more important to me or else I'm just uh, in the conversation really to stroke my own ego uh rather than to stoke learning. And so I think learning to really focus on learning is key. And then I help people develop skills for making that mindset where we're leaning into difference, we're pooling differing perspectives to expand how we're thinking about the issue. There are a couple of candor skills and a couple of curiosity skills I help people learn. And the the candor skills you could say are the antidote for the minimizing dynamic. So if I'm in a meeting and I suddenly notice uh oh there's my need to minimize kicking into gear and I can feel myself starting to shut down or water down my point or acquiesce to a dominant view in the meeting. The candor skills are the behaviors I would use to keep that from compromising my effectiveness. And then the curiosity skills have the same purpose with the wind tendency. If I notice myself starting to overheat in a meeting or getting a little argumentative or a little too big for my britches, the curiosity skills are the behaviors I would use to kind of put that mindset to use and keep my candor and curiosity and balance.
1: So what are like a couple of the candor skills that you would list off or development tools that you would put in play?
2: There's two candor skills. They're fairly straightforward. So they seem fairly you know easy almost. But under pressure, you'd be surprised how hard they are when your need to minimize is getting in the way. And the first skill is you state where you're at on the issue in one sentence or no more than two. So I call that stating your position. And what I mean by a position, it's where you're at on the topic being discussed, your views, your ideas, your concerns, your suggestion. If you think we should hold off on a strategy for six months, you would say, I think we should hold off on this implementing this strategy for at least six months. It's in one sentence you let people know where you're at on the issue. It could even be a feeling where you say, I got to be honest, this decision scares me. If you have a strong win tendency, stating where you're at on an issue is no big deal. You're pretty good at it. But if you're minimizing tendencies being triggered, that's a tough skill to master.
1: Because normally the, the the gut reaction is to soften or therefore put a paragraph around what you really want to say, right?
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I can, oh, I, can, oh, I can put a paragraph around it. That's exactly right. Uh, or I can water it down. I'm wondering if maybe there's uh, another way we might consider doing this perhaps rather than coming out and saying, I think there's a better way to go here. So that's exactly right. The tendency is to water it down, to cover it up or to pack it, like you say, with a paragraph to soften the blow. When, what you really want to do is state it in one sentence, no more than two. I liken it to a, a topic sentence in good paragraph construction, right? Just boom. It's a quick, clean, tight synopsis of where you're about to go. The second skill is like um, long division homework in elementary school. Your teacher never allowed you to just bring in the answers. Your teacher uh, forced you to bring in your homework. You had to actually show how you got your answer. You had to show your work. And so in the, the second candor skill is you're, you're expected to show the thinking behind your position. Here's what I think you're saying in essence, and here's why I think it. You're kind of laying out your cognitive roadmap, which includes what evidence you might have for the issue, the the point of view you hold, but also the assumptions you're making, what you think the data is suggesting. So those are the two candor skills.
1: And then obviously the next obvious question, the curiosity skills.
2: And this next one, as you know, when we talked uh, here a while back, is kind of the most important skill. I think if learning is most important and we're trying to expand and improve our thinking because learning is important, this next skill is important for a couple of reasons. One, it's the most unusual behavior. Two, it counters the way the brain naturally works. You know, the brain, we're all kind of plagued with the confirmation bias. Which is the tendency of the brain, once we've adopted a perspective, to immediately begin looking for information that will support that view and to begin dismissing and discounting or even completely ignoring information that contradicts it. So we tend to get stuck in a perspective. This is an anti-confirmation bias. And once we've put out our view and then we've explained our view, we do something unusual and we test it. We actually invite people to help us find fault with it. We don't sit back and passively hope someone might share a concern about our thinking. We actually invite them and encourage them to challenge us. And there are some casual tests like what do you think or what's your reaction to what I've just said or who has a different view. Sometimes our testing needs to be more vigorous, especially if we're in a position of authority where people may be very nervous about challenging us. So I watched an executive recently put a view on the table, kind of explained his take on the issue, and then said, look, I know I'm hard to push back on here, so break into pairs and for 15 minutes talk about this. And in 15 minutes, I want from each pair one thing you like about what I've suggested, and most importantly, I want two things you don't. And so really working hard to pull concerns, disparate perspectives, better ways perhaps of looking at the issue into the conversation. So a good test signals an openness to disconfirming views.
1: That's great. And and again, doesn't always come intuitive, particularly to that leader that has been more of a dictatorial leader, perhaps um, someone that's kind of made all of the decisions on their own. So those folks, it, it's a harder, it, not even in practice, but really to get responded to in a way that you're looking for for your team to, you're inviting your team for the feedback, but they're not used to being asked for it.
2: That's right. Yeah, well said. And sometimes even asking them for it, and it makes it, they still can't muster the ability to speak candidly. Nothing lowers conversational capacity more predictably than the presence of authority. And so if we're in an authority role, we need to work very hard to pull information up into our role because it doesn't flow there naturally. And really good, authentic, strong testing is a key to that.
1: Well, it's interesting. So obviously, this this topic is is so important for our listeners. As you know, this podcast is dedicated primarily to small business leaders and HR professionals. So what advice or suggestion would you give to a small business leader who is leading a, a senior team, and maybe they aren't getting the results out of that team that they They could or should be getting and then flip it over to the HR department. What impact can the HR team have on their company if they recognize some conversational breakdown in terms of capacity and ability to stay in that sweet spot?
2: Um, I think from a leadership perspective, I think conversational capacity is sort of an underappreciated aspect of really competent leadership. Uh, Bob Keegan once said that any organization is a community of discourse. Leadership is about shaping the nature of the discourse. So what I really help leaders learn to do is how do you pay more attention, not just to whether you have the right people around the table, but do the behaviors in the team help or hinder the team's ability to bring their best thinking to your issues, to your decisions, to your challenges, to your strategy, to your changes? And how do you use the frameworks, you know, candor and curiosity, the skills to start noticing how are people participating here and how might I help them you know, engage these issues in a more constructive way? I use the quote from Ayrton Moreira, a Brazilian jazz percussionist who once said um, about it playing improvisational jazz. I listen to what's being played and then I play what's missing. I think that's a great way to think about leadership. How do I shape the conversations in my team or my business so they're more healthy, more constructive and more balanced and do that by watching what's being played and playing what's missing? Is there not enough candor in this meeting? What can I do to ratchet it up a notch or two? Or perhaps the problem is not enough curiosity and people are just locking horns and arguing. What can I do to slow down the conversation, deepen it and get the people focused back on the problem?
1: A lot of times, as I was reading your book, particularly after we spent the day offsite together and I was reflecting on our conversations as a team and then diving deeper into the concepts in the book, so much of this comes down to perspective. If a team values difference because they know they can learn more from difference than sameness, then this idea of conflict is actually a welcomed, it's not a bad word. And I mean, even here at Zenium, we have courses on conflict resolution and how to you know, have healthy conflict in a, in an organization, but it's it's a negative. People come because they have problems with their manager, with their subordinates or peers, and they want to fix this conflict. But at the end of the day, conflict is kind of a good thing in your world. You see it as a positive learning opportunity.
2: Yeah, well said. I think a way to frame it perhaps is that Conflict is neutral. There's going to be conflicting perspectives, conflicting personalities, you name it. Conversational capacity determines whether it's a strength or a weakness. If conversational capacity is low in a relationship or a team, then our conflicting perspectives are a barrier to good work. If, like you said, our conversational capacity is high, the conflicting perspectives are actually something useful. We, we know how to leverage them for learning. We can think in a more nimble, agile, flexible way about a tough problem because we know how to harness the conflict and use it to spark good learning. And so I think the conversational capacity in many ways is a you know make or break variable in terms of how well a team deals with conflict. It's either going to tear the team apart or it's going to build the team up depending on how they use it.
1: How does ego play into all of this, Craig, in terms of working with leaders that you co- um, or that you've seen play in, inside the teamwork? Where does ego play and how do you manage that?
2: Um, I, I mentioned earlier that I refer to this uh, the conversational capacity as a discipline or a conversational martial art, but it's not a martial art where we're using these skills against other people. So if you and I are in a meeting uh, and we're both trying to work in the sweet spot, you are not my opponent in this discipline. You're just the person I'm talking to. My opponent isn't even the issue you and I are trying to deal with or the decision we're trying to make in this conversational martial art. If I want to stay focused on learning and stay in the sweet spot, my opponent is my ego. And I need to be genuinely more interested in learning, getting smarter, and thinking clearly than getting an ego massage. And so for some people, their ego massage is staying comfortable and keeping things on an even keel. For other people, their ego massage is being right, selling their view, dominating the conversation. So we need to learn to recognize those two more ego-satisfying reactions and stay focused on learning and balance candor and curiosity in the process. So. You will know, often tell leaders, if you want to be a better leader and you want to run a better business, you're going to have to become a better human being, less driven by the base impulses, uh, you know, our emotional reactions and more driven by the better angels of our nature.
1: I, I think we've all had those conversations that hurt. It's the words may not be the problem. Right. So the words coming out of the person you're having this conversation with are, are not the issue. They may even be right, so to speak but it's the way in which it was delivered that closes (laughs) us off. So I love your wrapping paper example. You say, don't dismiss opinions or positions just because of delivery, just like you wouldn't refrain from opening a gift just because it was wrapped in ugly wrapping paper. Love that. I mean, I think about that sometimes to say the point that this person's making is a good one. I don't love, it doesn't make me feel great how it was delivered to me, but I would always unwrap a a gift. <laughs> right. It was given to me in funny papers, or given to me in in polka dots that didn't match. I would still unwrap that gift. So, really approaching every conversation that way has been a help to me, even just anecdotally walking through my my day um, after reading your book.
2: Oh, I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah, I, I found routinely in life I've fallen into that trap where I dismiss a perspective simply because I don't like the way it's being delivered. Which is again like not opening a birthday present because you don't like the wrapping paper. You'd never do that. It's not about the wrapping paper. So you know i think if you can develop the discipline to let the behavior go and stay focused on learning what might i learn from this perspective they're upset they're, they're they're clearly not handling their point well but that doesn't mean the point they're trying to make doesn't have some useful you know some usefulness so let me get past their behavior and focus on what's the message they're trying to deliver here that's a better approach but surprisingly hard to do
1: why don't you you're a great storyteller and i want to invite the audience to hear um, just one of your more proud moments as a consultant and working through this model with some of your clients, pick a story, pick a Pick something that has happened that kind of lets you put your head down at night to say, I am doing good work because I just saw this model come to play for this company. You don't have to use names if you don't want to. But I know you have a lot of those. A lot of these things come to life for you. Put this into action inside of a story for the listeners.
2: Okay, Um, I'll share one. I think you might remember this story from um, the offsite uh, I spoke at. But uh, I love this. And it's a great example of someone who's learning to rein in their ego and to behave in a very different way to try to help their people think more intelligently together. And this was an engineering leader in Silicon Valley who heard a presentation I made and loved the idea of testing. He said, I've got a lot of smart engineers around the table, but I don't have access to any of their smarts. He said, if I'm really honest with you, my weekly meetings are really little more than me holding court. So he went back to his executive team meetings, very excited to get his engineers to engage and began testing. What do you think? What's your reaction to this? Where are you at on this? And he got nowhere. He said, it was very disappointing. I went out all excited. And when I began testing, I I found it didn't work. I didn't get anything from my team. So I asked him, well, what did you do? He said, well, my COO had heard you speak as well. So I invited him into my office. And I said, look, you see me testing. I'm trying to engage with you. Why is it not working? So he kind of put his COO on the spot there. And fortunately, the COO rose to the occasion and said, "Okay, well, if you're interested, I think there are three things about you that almost guarantee your engineers aren't going to challenge you publicly in a meeting. He said, what are they? And he said, here's a big one. Your name is on the building. You own this thing. It's your company. That makes you a more daunting character. Two, you have a degree in engineering from MIT. You're extremely bright technically, which makes you a little more challenging to go up against. And he says, those aren't even the big ones. He says, here's the the big one. This is the coup de gras. He said, you have a really uh, aggressive win tendency. You don't like to be wrong. And everybody knows it. And you put those three things together, you're a daunting character. And so I asked the uh, the CEO, I said, well, what did you do with that information? He said, that kept me awake at night. That was some of the hardest feedback I've ever received. And I decided after a lot of thought, I would use training wheels. I said, what does that mean? And he said, I went back to my next staff meeting intentionally with a big decision. And I put it out there in front of the engineers. I kind of described my thinking and laid out a little bit of information. And then I said, before I make this decision, I want to make sure I get a lot of really robust input from this team. There's a lot of smart people around the table. To do that, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave the room for 30 minutes, and when I come back in half an hour, I'd like at least three concerns about what I've just suggested on a flip chart. And he got up and left, and he gave his engineers 30 minutes in his absence to wrestle with the issues, get their concerns out in the open. And I like that flip chart idea when it's a little safer, a little more neutral territory. And then when he came in, um, he he sat at the far end of the table. He pulled out a pad of paper, and he said, what would you come up with? And he said, I listened. I took notes. I, I asked questions. I could not believe how much information I got out of that. He says, it was stunning. He says, my first thought was, damn it, is this what I've been missing? This is outstanding. And so, right. so was, what he began doing, to make a long story short, is doing that regularly. In his meetings, when something significant was there uh, being addressed, he made sure he gave his team time in his absence to get their ideas, their concerns, their counterexamples on the table. He said, it was working like a charm until one day something funny happened. He said, I got up to leave the meeting, and one of my engineers said out loud, look, we talked about this as a team, Um, you don't need to leave the room. And so that's a great example of culture change, someone watching what's being played and playing what's missing, someone taking responsibility for trying to shape the conversations in a more constructive direction. But it wasn't like he just tested once or twice and they believed it. It had to be a pattern over time where they began to realize his mindset, not just his behavior, was changing. So I just love that example as someone really working hard to exercise effective leadership by making sure they've got a climate where their smart people can bring their smarts to the team.
1: Right. And his true win, while it was in all those great ideas that his team was finally now providing, but the great win was when he was invited to stay. That's right. <laughs> because that means they trusted his ability to take that feedback from their mouths, not just a flip chart. And he earned trust there. It actually begs the question what you, how you engage the naysayers when you are managing an issue or a decision and you obviously aren't looking always for agreement You're always going to have folks that are like, I don't think this is the way we ought to be going. Right? Um, How do you keep those folks engaged? They're still on the senior leadership team. They're still, they may even have work, bodies of work to do based on decisions that are being made that they're not necessarily all on board with. What do you do to keep those naysayers engaged and feeling part of the team even when their decision wasn't picked?
2: Yeah, great question because that's actually uh, – you know, that's that's if we're not going to focus on agreement, then we better figure out how to deal with this agreement. Um, I think three things are relevant there. One, the research shows that to have commitment to a decision, agreement is not the key factor. It turns out if you want people to be committed to a decision, you need two things. One is people need to feel the process was fair. They have to, okay, I like the way the decision was made. I might say, you know what? I don't agree with the decision Angela made, but I like the way she made it. Secondly, people need to feel they were heard. And if people feel heard and they trust, they, they, they like the process by which a decision was reached, you'll often see people say, I don't agree with that decision, but I can get behind it. I see why they're going that direction and not the one I suggested. Okay, what do you want me to do? The last thing is when you're implementing a decision, having a naysayer on the team isn't necessarily a bad thing. There you Having someone who's a little more critical about it, not in a destructive way, I told you so, but in a constructive way. Hey, remember that red flag I was concerned about? I think we've got an issue here. They can often help you figure out when it's time to make some adjustments, to make some tweaks. And I use the example of sailing. You don't just sail in a straight line to a point. You actually tack and move back and forth along the way using the wind. I think a lot of times in decision-making, it's not a straight line from make the decision, execute, and it's a straight line to success. There's a lot of tacking and adjusting along the way. As my friend Frank Barrett says, you kind of learn as you go. Having those more critical minds on the team are really useful if that's the goal. How do we get better at recognizing when we may need to make some adjustments to our decision so it kind of fits the reality we're up against? So make sure the process is fair. Um, you know, show people also how what they've contributed to your decision. So you might say, listen, I'm not going to choose what you suggested, Angela, but let me tell you two things about what you brought to the table that really influenced the way I'm making the decision. I'm now looking at two risks I never would have seen if you hadn't chimed in. So just because I'm not choosing what you suggested, don't think you didn't add value here. That was extremely helpful. If you can show people how they contributed, you'll often see them roll up their sleeves and get busy.
1: So if we've got listeners in their car, they're a part of a senior leadership team, but no one else is hearing all of this messaging that we're talking about uh, stopping short of going to Amazon and buying your book right now and putting it on their, you know, president's desk. What are other ways individuals can actually influence their teams with this model? And and how I guess what tools would you put in the place of an individual's hand?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, what's nice about these skills is that they aren't dependent on everyone in the room knowing the skills for them to work. A single person in a meeting who's familiar with the basic skills can have a profound impact on the way that meeting unfolds. And so even if, you know, you're not going to share these ideas with the broader team or you don't think the team may listen, that doesn't mean you can't learn some of these skills and begin making a very constructive difference in your own right. And so the book obviously provides a uh, an overview of this, and it go into a lot more depth. The first five chapters are, Really talk about conversational capacity, what blocks it, that need to minimize, that need to win with some fairly scary examples. And then there's chapters on the mindset, the skills. So there's a lot of practical advice in that. So that might be a way to start.
1: Other resources you have for folks, Craig. Where do you send people? Articles, podcasts, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a. Uh, I have a on my website. I have a uh, a page um, that has a lot of articles around this stuff. Things like how to instill trust in your team. I have a very popular article called "Leaning Into Difference: The Key to Solving Tough Problems," which kind of gets into that mindset. How do we put learning in the driver's seat and make it more important than feeling comfortable or being right? And so the website's got a lot of uh, options. I'm right in the process of working with my son. We're setting up, we've set up a studio and we're going to start uh, putting out a lot of YouTube content. So a lot of free material, frame some of the basic concepts, give examples, answer questions, interviews with other thought leaders. So that's uh, in the works as well. So by the end of summer, we should have that up and running and ready to roll.
1: Excellent. And your website address?
2: It is weberconsultinggroup.net.
1: All right. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. I'm sure um, you've added a ton of value and at least been able to connect with folks that are saying, yes, that happens to me. And now they'll have a resource to help. Um, influence their teams. So I'm excited about that.
2: I certainly hope so. As I I say, the world needs people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and to try to help people engage problems in a more healthy, constructive way. So I certainly hope, uh, you know, some of your audience members find this useful and maybe decide to go out there and have a conversation they've been thinking about having, perhaps have been avoiding, or maybe they've had the conversation, but they haven't been having it as constructively as they'd like. So I certainly hope this is helpful. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk.
1: You bet. You bet. You're doing great work. So keep doing it. We look forward to seeing the rest of your content coming out to your website soon.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business Podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www. Dot zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc., For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.